This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. The Cabinet Office Minister Oliver Dowden joined Laura Koonsberg this morning and was asked to account for a series of irate and expletive-laden messages sent by the Conservative MP Gavin Williamson to the previous Chief Whip, Wendy Morton. Williamson, who has since been appointed to Rishi Sunak's Cabinet, had accused Morton of punishing MPs by not inviting them to Queen Elizabeth's funeral and declared his unwillingness to cooperate with the Trust government. Koonsberg asked if Sunak had shown good judgment in welcoming Williamson back to Whitehall. For the audience, these are messages we can put up on the screen here that Gavin Williamson, who I think you're his boss in the Cabinet Office, a government minister, sent to the then Chief Whip, Wendy Morton. Now, I'm not going to read out everything they say because they're pretty vile. They contain some pretty unpleasant language. Um, Is that an acceptable way to talk to a colleague? Uh, No, it's not. And these were sent in the heat of the moment at a very difficult time. Gavin... Uh, accepts that he shouldn't have said these things and that he regrets it and we should all treat each other uh, with respect and courtesy and that was not the case The problem with this is is that Rishi Sunak, your boss, said on his first day moving into Downing Street that he was going to have a government with the highest integrity, the highest accountability and the highest levels of professionalism. He gave Gavin Williamson a job back in government even though he'd been warned that there was a complaint of bullying. Well, it was no secret that um, Gavin Williamson and others, indeed, didn't enjoy uh, a good relationship uh, with the the chief whip at the the time. It was not the case, though, that the Prime Minister saw the detail. No, but he uh, knew there was a complaint against Gavin Williamson. Well, the the complaint itself is uh, ongoing, and I don't think it, it would be appropriate for me to to prejudge that. And obviously it has to be treated with with confidentiality. What's to prejudge? We've all seen the texts. There's no dispute. Gavin Williamson has said he did it and he knows he shouldn't have done it. I don't think viewers will think this morning there has to be some sort of big investigation. He did something he shouldn't have done that was obviously very unpleasant for the person who received those text messages. The Prime Minister knew there was a complaint about him bullying people and he gave him a job anyway. What is to investigate? Surely that's a complete contradiction of your boss's ambition to have a government of the highest integrity. Well, on the facts of that that exchange, as as I said to you, that's not acceptable. He shouldn't have said it. He has said that he regrets doing so. He has given he has given given some context, which was that this was at the time of heightened frustration. Uh, It was remember him as a backbencher to the chief whip. What? So if you're in a bad mood, it's okay to talk like that to a colleague. This is not acceptable. However. There is this complaints process ongoing, and it was not the case that the Prime Minister had seen this this exchange of messages. So there's no consequence for Gavin Williamson for doing this? No punishment, no consequence, he just says sorry and move on? The complaints process is ongoing, so I don't think... You can't say you're going to have a complaints process and then have a minister come on this show Mm. and start to prejudge that. What is right for, for me to say is that this is not acceptable. That is what Gavin himself has accepted... What I'm also saying to you is let that process uh, complete. I think With the Environmental Conference COP27 beginning today in Sharm el-Sheikh, Koonsberg also inquired as to whether the COP26 summit held in Glasgow had been a success. 
The UK's reputation is important in the context of this climate summit. We're way off course, as we've just been discussing. The British presidency has not been a success, has it? I don't think that's a fair characterisation. I think, actually, if you look at what was achieved with the former Prime Minister at Glasgow, we made important steps forward. But it's clear that uh, at Egypt we've got to make further progress. I think the United Kingdom government is delivering a lot, but clearly we need to have uh, agreement across all nations, and this is an important milestone. I think you find with these COPs, as you go through them, each one is critical because you need to keep that momentum going, and that's the challenge. But the momentum from one. Glasgow has stalled, though, has it not? I mean, with the best will in the world, it's only 24 out of 193 countries have kept the promise that they were going to come back with tougher targets. And the UK itself has not yet paid all the money that it promised. So how can you say that actually it's been a success? Well, we got some important commitments at and they've COP. Not been kept. Of course, we need, to have, we need to make more progress, and that's precisely what, uh, what's happening at Egypt, and I hope we make that progress. In terms of what the United Kingdom government itself has done, if you look, mm -hmm. for example, at renewables in the energy sector, there's been a four- or five-fold increase mm -hmm. since the Conservatives came to power in 2010. So we are making mm -hmm. big progress. And, of course, we were the first country pretty much major country in the world, to legislate for net zero by 2050. And that was so, a Theresa May so decision. So there is very strong commitment. But your own government. climate change committee, who are the sort of independent arbiters who check your homework, they've said that the UK is way off track. Well, we're making good progress, but we still have more to do, as, as all countries have, have more to do. And I think that's, that's one of the challenges of the Egypt conference, to make sure we continue to make that progress. The government's autumn statement will be taking place on the 17th of November. Sophie Ridge asked Dowden if the government was still committed to their promise to level up much of the country, after Dowden suggested that spending was likely to be cut. Rishi Sunak's talked a lot about the mandate from the 2019 election, all about levelling up, all about levelling up outside of London. And you can see there from Bradford, people are really worried you're going to go back on it. Well, we're committed to honouring our 2019 manifesto and levelling up forms the heart of it. And indeed, that was a manifesto that was agreed uh, by, by the Prime Minister and indeed by me and other members of the Cabinet uh, with the Prime Minister. We remain fully uh, committed to honouring our manifesto uh, commitments. However, of course, that is in the context of a very difficult uh, financial situation. But I can assure you that the autumn statement will continue our commitment to, to levelling up. Including Northern Powerhouse Rail in full? Well, it's, it's tempting to get drawn into each and every uh, announcement. I've said that difficult decisions will have to be taken, but, but in taking those difficult decisions, we will be very cognizant of the duty that we owe to people that voted to us for us, often for the first time in 2019, back to manifesto that included uh, levelling up. And you will see levelling up being honoured in that manifest, in the, that autumn statement. Ridge went on to speak to the Shadow Energy Secretary, Ed Miliband, about the UK's progress on the environment and cleaner fuel. The big picture here, Sophie, for the country and the world is that the UN has told us that the promises made in Glasgow haven't been kept. We're heading for 2.8 degrees of global warming and obviously we're also in the midst of a global energy crisis. Now the message that Labour would be taking to COP27 and that I will be taking at the end of this coming week when I go is that it is now cheaper to save the world than to destroy it. And what do I mean by that? I mean that renewable power solar, wind and other forms of zero carbon energy are cheaper than fossil fuels. And this matters so much, Sophie, because it means that at home and abroad, we need to be all in on those renewable and zero carbon alternatives. Now, that takes me to onshore wind. It is terrible what Oliver Dowden was saying on your programme earlier. He actually made some important news by saying the government was 
committing to carrying on with the ban on onshore wind that has been in place for the last seven years. For your viewers at home, Sophie, that is driving up their bills. It's already driven up their bills by something like £100. It will continue to drive up their bills by £15 billion between now and 2030 if this ban remains in place. So the government is saying no to the cheapest, cleanest form of power. And by the way, it's going back on a promise that Jacob Rees-Mogg made in the brief period when he was the uh, business secretary, where he said that they would bring the consenting regime for onshore wind in line with other infrastructure. It makes no sense, and it makes a complete joke, frankly, of Rishi Sunak, the man who couldn't even decide whether he was going to go to COP27. It makes a complete joke of the idea that he's somehow a leader on clean energy. Koonsberg questioned Miliband about the policy substance behind the rhetoric at COP. Part of the debate is going to be about the richer part of the world paying the poorer part of the world to help them deal with carbon costs. And some people even call it reparations. Essentially, wealthy countries ought to be giving money to countries that are finding the impacts of climate change very profound and difficult. Would a Labour government pay reparations to developing countries for climate change? I don't see it as about reparations. And actually, when you talk to lots of campaigners, they don't either. This is about the issue of so-called loss and damage. Mm -hmm. This is the fact that poorer countries are facing massive effects of climate change. You know, we see it all around the and world. We, we see can, it. And we can quibble about the, about the terminology. Well, no, the terminology but, matters yeah, because lots it, of people are allergic our, to the term reparations. But, but reparations. our viewers will want to know also if a Labour government would transfer large amounts uh, of cash to the developing world, including to China. Would Labour give money to China? It's not about China? China, no. It's not about China. So you wouldn't. I, I don't think China isn't necessarily isn't asking for money. Uh, look, this is about poorer countries that are on the front line of the climate crisis. Pakistan had these disastrous floods recently, 30% of the country underwater. So this is about global solidarity. I mean, yes, we have some historical responsibility, but this is about global solidarity, and it's absolutely part of our aid commitment. You know, we don't think the government was right to cut the 0.7 aid commitment. But so so you were, just to be clear, and I'm I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but to be clear, a Labour government Absolutely, it's about supporting poorer countries, completely right. Um, And and let me just say, it's morally right, Laura, but it's also in our self-interest too. Because if we don't act and if we don't help countries around the world, we're going to end up with the problems that countries face in t- terms of refugees, for example, coming back onto us. Except that China is part of the group of countries that is asking for loss and damage, to use the COP sure. terminology. We should recognise loss and damage, absolutely. Including but, but for it's a country China. with as much no, money for China. It's but not about giving money to China. I promise you, Laura, it's not about giving money to China. Uh, that, that's not what this is about. This is about countries like the Maldives, like mm-hmm. Pakistan and others. And we have aid commitments. Now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the government has resiled from many of our aid commitments, but it is absolutely about recognising our moral responsibility. And finally, Ridge spoke to the Labour MP Paul Bromfield, whose father took his own life after being diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer, about the case for relaxing laws around assisted dying. What is the current law when it comes to assisted dying? Well, essentially it's illegal. Um, The current law prevents people having choice at the end of their life. Uh, and it drives people to take very desperate measures in many cases, like my father did. And also those around them, if it's seen that anyone's assisted someone in taking their life. Yes, even discussing their plans would make family members complicit, and of course some people have been prosecuted for that. And what do you want to happen? I want to see a change in the law which gives people choice, which means that for people who have a terminal diagnosis of six months or less and know the end is certain, that they can choose the point at which they pass 
instead of, in many cases, having to live out a fairly miserable death. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Matthew Taylor. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily Evening Blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>